If you would, please uh, open your Bibles to Psalm 91, Psalm 91, which is uh, the text for this evening's message, Psalm 91, and we'll read this in its entirety. This, of course, is one of the Psalms that does not have a title, and so we will simply just begin reading in verse 1, Psalm 91. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word, Psalm 91, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and on the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that indeed when we cry out to you, we can call out to you and know that you will answer. And so we pray, O Lord, that we would uh, hear your word, that you would give unto us Uh, words of life, that you would help us to see and hear the gospel of Christ clearly, the gospel that we need not only for our entry into the Christian life and the kingdom of God, but for every subsequent moment thereafter. And so we long to hear your word. We long, O Lord, for your love. We long, O Lord, for the saving grace of Christ through the Spirit. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Communion uh, is a word, I think, that a lot of contemporary Protestants do not use with great frequency. I think it's because perhaps the word is often associated with Roman Catholicism. Uh, When Roman Catholics speak of the Lord's Supper, they will speak of Holy Communion. Uh, Now, while we can, uh, you know, discuss what's the best term for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper... Uh, The origins, I think, uh, uh, of this word uh, are more pertinent uh, to an important doctrine that we perhaps may not consider as often as we should, and that is the doctrine of communion with our triune God. Uh, The great Puritan preacher called the Prince of Puritans, John Owen, uh, defines communion with God Uh, from his famous and well-known work, Communion with the Triune God, uh, as follows. He says, our communion with God consists in his communication of himself to us with our return 
uh, to him of that which he requires and accepts, flowing from that union which is in Jesus Christ we have with him. In simpler terms, what Owen is saying is that by virtue of our union with Christ, that union that we possess uh, uh, by faith alone, by God's grace alone in Christ alone, that union that we possess creates a communion with the triune God. It creates a fellowship that we can have with him. So in that sense, we can say communion is another word for fellowship. And so what this psalm is chiefly about is our communion or fellowship with God. But before we can be in communion with God, we have to have a right relationship with him. In other words, you have to get to know somebody before you can have fellowship with them. And in this particular case, we have to be in a saving relationship with a triune God through the gospel of Jesus Christ by the mighty working of the Holy Spirit. So we need faith in Christ. That brings us into union with our triune God. And then once we have that foundation of our union with God, we then have fellowship with God. And so part of that fellowship that we enjoy with the triune God is receiving the protection uh, that we have from God as he watches over us, as he cares for us, as a father caring for uh, his children. And so in this case, this is what we want to look at here in Psalm 91. So first what we want to do is we want to give thought to what the psalmist has to say about the need for trusting in God. And we can fill that out a little bit in saying that trusting in his promises that he has given us in Christ, the gospel promises of Christ. Secondly, we want to see what the psalmist has to say about the nature of our union with the triune God that comes to us through Christ when he unites us in holy union with Jesus Christ through the all-powerful working of the Holy Spirit. And then third and finally, we want to hear what the psalmist has to say about our communion with the triune God, uh, our fellowship that we have through Christ and the Spirit. So trusting, union, and communion. So let's see what the psalmist has to say here about trusting in God. Now, we don't know the precise context uh, of this particular psalm. Some might think that that is perhaps an obstacle uh, to being able to benefit from it, but far from it. God, in his wisdom, I think, oftentimes strips away a lot of the context so that we can apply and so that we can use uh, most of these psalms in, in, in a variety of circumstances. And so I think that that in itself, I think, is commendable and helpful to us. However, we can still say that the likely scenario is that the psalmist is writing in a time of war when Israel is facing opposition from its enemies. And so perhaps with that likely scenario, the scenario of war, this gives us a frame of reference for the opening two verses of the psalm. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now, right off the bat, the psalmist exhibits an intimacy with God that reveals and discloses that he has a close relationship with him. 
It's a fact in particular that is revealed by the series of names that the psalmist invokes. He calls God Most High, El Yon. Sometimes you may have heard that term for God, that name for God, El El Yon, God Most High. He calls God Almighty, which would be another term perhaps with which we are familiar, that God is El Shaddai. He is uh, uh, all-powerful in that regard. But the psalmist, in addition to this, also invokes the covenant name of God, Yahweh. He says, you are my Lord. Uh, It is uh, the Lord in whom he takes refuge. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And here, uh, fourth and finally, he says that God is his God by calling him my God. These are not words. These are not names uh, that, uh, that shows us that the psalmist somehow stands off in the distance, but rather it shows that the psalmist has a very close and intimate relationship with the Lord, especially the fact that he invokes the covenant name of God. I suspect that all of us uh, if we were to, you know, be able to, to listen in to the various conversations that go on in our respective homes, I think that as we would refer to one another or as you would refer to one another, I bet you a bunch of different names would come out. Uh, my daughter uh, has a number of nicknames uh, in the house that her brothers have given to her, that my, my wife and I have given to her. My wife has a number of nicknames that she has given to me. Uh, and, and vice versa, if you're a member of the family, chances are you have specific and intimate names by which you refer to your family members. It shows that you're close, that you know one another. This is the kind of thing that's going on here. The psalmist is using these names that only one who has a close relationship with the Lord could invoke especially uh, that uh, covenant name of God. And so what this begins to do here, notice there at the end of verse two, when he says, my God in whom I trust, it shows us the nature of this trust. I don't know, sometimes I stopped watching years ago. I lost interest. And to be honest, I can't tell you why I started watching in the first place. But I used to watch uh, award shows, uh, whether it was, uh, you know, the Emmys or, or whether it was the Oscars. And every once in a while, one of the Hollywood celebrities would win and they would get up there and they would hold the statue up in the air and just say, I want to thank God. And I'd always wait are they going to mention Jesus? Are they going to mention Jesus? No, they're not mentioning Jesus. They're just mentioning God. That gives the impression that the person stands at least at some distance. But what we have to do to recognize that not only is the psalmist close with the Lord, he knows the Lord intimately, is we want to understand the nature of the trust that he has in the Lord. And that we have to situate this psalm Uh, in the rest of the book of Psalms, but especially within the rest of the cradle of the entirety of Scripture. Remember, the Lord, Yahweh, promised to save his people through the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here, when he says, I will say to Yahweh, my, lo- my refuge, I'm sorry, I will say to Yahweh, to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, I think he looks 
And he has in mind God's first promise that he gives to Adam and Eve to save them through the seed of the woman. He's trusting in his word. But more closely within the book of Psalms itself, we know that the Lord has pinpointed the seed of the woman as the seed of David, as his anointed. The Lord's anointed his Messiah. And what's especially relevant here is listen to the word that the psalmist invokes in Psalm chapter 2, verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in the Son, who take refuge in the anointed. I will say to the Lord, Psalm 91, verse 2, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So here, the psalmist is taking refuge in the Lord and in his anointed. In his anointed. And so here, this is the nature of the psalmist's trust in God's covenant promises to him. And because he know that God is sovereign, because he know that God is all-powerful, because he knows that God is faithful, he knows that the Lord will indeed save him. Verse 3, For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. Now, there are dangers here that he uh, elaborates are unseen dangers. So what he's saying here is he's saying, essentially, from those things that I'm unable to perceive, even from those things, you will save me. Think of the fowler's snare. What's the whole point of hiding a trap so that the bird doesn't see it, so then the the fowler can capture the bird? It's an unseen danger. What about the nature of the deadly pestilence? The deadly pestilence. Now, certainly, the biblical writer is unaware of of the atomic world of germs, okay? But he nevertheless knows that there is an unseen danger in plague or in pestilence because you can't see it, you can't smell it, uh, you can't detect it. It just simply strikes without warning. It's like I made the mistake the other day of, you know, reading a book Uh, all about how the human body functions. Uh, And in one sense, it was fascinating. Uh, It was amazing to be able to consider uh, the, the miracle that God has given us in life and how the body functions. But at the same time, it was also quite terrifying to know, for example, that a sneeze can travel uh, like several hundred feet. (laughs) And I think, oh my goodness, there's the deadly pestilence as it, as it flies across the room. You know, so here's the deadly pestilence. Here's the fowler snare, the unseen danger. And yet the psalmist says, the Lord will protect you. He'll deliver you. He will deliver you from those unseen dangers. I think what the psalmist reminds us is that for those who take refuge in Christ and in his promises, God will and does protect us. In the Heidelberg Catechism, we read this in question 54. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church. I believe that the Son of God, through his spirit and word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its ends, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united 
in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member. So God gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community. And this is the community that takes refuge in the promises of Christ. This is the community, as the catechism says, out of the entire world that God sets his love upon, his special love in Christ. Why? Why does God protect his people in this way? Psalm 91, verse 14, because he, or we can say because they, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him, because he knows my name. God protects those whom he loves, but he protects those who love him. Of course, we have to remember John's words from 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. So it's not that we reached out to him and and that's why he looks upon us in love, but rather it is because he has set his love upon us. He has decided he will save us. He has decided to give us Christ. He has decided uh, to preserve us and to protect us. But at the same time, notice here why the psalmist knows that he has the Lord's protection, as the Lord says, because he knows my name. Only those in covenant with God, the covenant that we receive through Christ and the Spirit, can invoke the name of Christ unto salvation. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the, uh, in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. When we call upon the name of the Lord, we call upon the name of the Lord in the name of Christ. Yehoshua, Yahweh saves, that is the name of Christ. And he is the one upon whom we call for salvation. And he is the one because we know his name. He is God incarnate. God protects and preserves us. But we should ask this question. How does all of this come about? How does God cast his love upon us? How does he give us his gift of faith? How does he enable us to trust in Christ unto salvation? How does he enable us to call upon the name of the Lord and to love him? The short answer is, is through the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. And this brings us to our second point, which is the union that we have in God that comes through Christ and especially through the work of the Spirit. But before we can really understand and appreciate what the psalmist here is saying, it's, it's, it's powerful imagery. We have to go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, to the very opening verses of Genesis itself. In that we read this in Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That language, unfortunately in our own day to our contemporary ears, perhaps invokes the hovering of a helicopter. You know, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, but the language itself is not that of a hovering helicopter, but rather of a hovering bird. Now, my son, my son Robert, 
uh, he has uh, two pet birds, two parakeets. Uh, one is uh, named Blue, and Blue is a male, uh, and he's uh, rebellious, he's wily, uh, and he's untamable. It's like every time we get him out of his, the cage, uh, he you know, immediately looks around, it's like, I'm out of here, and takes off and flies, and he flies to the highest point in the kitchen he can. It's rather annoying. We don't get Blue out very often. But the other bird that he has, uh, her name is Zippity. And Zippity, little blue parakeet, the other one's a blue parakeet, but she's a little blue parakeet. And she's very well trained uh, in that uh, Robert can take her and throw her. (laughs) He throws her, although not so much now. She's a little bit older. But he throws her and she'll fly around the, the, the room and then she'll come in and she'll land on his shoulder. Or he'll stand at the far side of the room, and he'll stand on the other side, and he'll tap his shoulder and call her, and she'll fly over to him. And I promise you this, every time I see that bird fly, I think of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because of this language here in Genesis, that little bird will come in, and I'm amazed at how agile she is as she comes in and she hovers and she hovers, and she looks, and she waits, and then she finds the perfect spot, and she touches down. This is the kind of language here, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's the work of the Spirit communicated in terms of a hovering bird. Now, I want us to move a little bit further into the biblical narrative, into Israel's history, and that when God led out of Egypt, the people of Israel, when he led them out on the Exodus, how does God describe these events in his word? Listen carefully to Isaiah 63, verses 10 and following, and that this is, this is the Isaiah speaking of what's going on in the Exodus. But they, Israel, Isaiah 63, 10 and following, rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and of his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in their midst? So God put the Holy Spirit in the midst of Israel. This is important. The prophet Haggai says something very similar in Haggai chapter 2, verses 4 and following. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. So two different prophets place the Holy Spirit in Israel's midst on the Exodus. Now listen to how Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32 describes the Spirit's presence or God's presence in Israel's midst on the Exodus. Deuteronomy 32, verses 11 and following, he found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters, that hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. Deuteronomy 32, 11, and 12 describes the Spirit's presence 
as an eagle fluttering or hovering over its nest. This is the same imagery from the creation of the Spirit of God hovering over the water like a bird. Now, there's a sense in which this should all begin to sound very familiar to us because when God uh, pours out the Holy Spirit upon Christ at his baptism, what do we see in the text but the Holy Spirit in Matthew 3.15 descending like a dove and coming upon him. So here comes a bird, but it is the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. So all the way from Christ's baptism, all the way back to the creation, we see the Holy Spirit hovering and descending. What does the psalmist say here in chapter 91, verses 4 and 5? He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. The triune God saves by sending the Spirit because of the finished work of Christ. He sends the Spirit upon us to give us the gift of faith and to indwell us and to hover over us as the Spirit hovered over the creation, as the Spirit hovered over Israel, as the Spirit descended and hovered and rested upon Christ, so too God sends the Son to give us the Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, The Spirit is life because of righteousness. In other words, because of the righteousness of Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. So much so that the psalmist describes the Holy Spirit's presence as that hovering bird over us, defending us, protecting us, being a shield for us. And so with the indwelling presence of Christ through the Spirit, our triune God therefore protects us from our enemies, verses 5 and following. You will not fear the terror by night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. The psalmist describes this in quite powerful terms, that our enemies cannot and will not harm us. However, we should not think that this will mean that God will never allow suffering in our lives. If you recall, it was Satan who quoted the words of Psalm 91 in his efforts to tempt Christ, to steer Jesus away from the cross. Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, it's also quoted in Matthew 4, 6, Luke 4, 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What Satan was trying to do is to twist God's word into saying that if God is going to protect you, he will never allow suffering to enter into your life. This is where we have to take a big step back from the scriptures to recognize that though we may suffer in the moment... Though we may suffer for a time, when we take that big step back and see our lives within the scope of 
the whole of God's promises within the scope of his plan for the entirety of our life, we recognize that no one can take us from the hand of Christ. No one uh, can render unto us ultimate harm. No one can prevent us from entering into the gates of heaven. No one can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That is what the psalmist speaks of. What the psalmist speaks of here, the protection that he is our shield and our buckler, that he is our fortress, our strong tower, that he, he hovers over us and protects us uh, as, as a bird hovering uh, over its, its nest, is the same truth that Paul speaks so beautifully in Romans 8 when he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is what the psalmist is saying. God protects those whom he loves, and he has hidden us in Christ. And so God, therefore, sends a hedge of angels around to protect his people because we're in Christ. And of course, who is our greatest foe? But Satan, verse 13, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. What is it that Paul says to the Romans in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet? So notice here what happens is that the trust of which the psalmist speaks is a trust in the promises of Christ. And because the psalmist trusts in Christ, the Lord protects him. So just as we trust in Christ, the Lord brings us into union with Christ and he protects us. He sees us safely to our eternal destiny. Uh, he preserves us in Christ and there is nothing in this world that separates us from God's love in Christ. Nothing. But salvation is more than protection. It's more than deliverance. As strange as it may sound, there's a greater blessing than deliverance from our enemies. I mean, if, if salvation was simply being delivered from Satan, we would have all reason to praise God from whom all blessings flow. But yet, it's more than that. Salvation is more. There's a greater blessing yet, which brings us to our third point, communion. There's trust, there's union, and now third and finally, there's communion. And that our larger catechism... Uh, gives us a brief but helpful explanation of this blessing. The Catechism says in question 65, what special benefits do the members of the invisible church enjoy by Christ? And it answers this, the members of the invisible church by Christ enjoy union and communion with him in grace and glory. Now, where does the psalmist speak of our communion with God here. We certainly see the trust. We see the protection that we have from union with God in Christ through the Spirit. But notice where he speaks of communion, where he speaks of fellowship. Uh, he says this in verses 9 and 10, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, 
No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. So here is the protection. Here is this, if you will, this circle of fellowship. And so here I think that not only does the psalmist speak of this type of protection, but notice verses 15 and 16, we see it go beyond protection to fellowship when he says, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You know, recently I was doing some reading that says that, uh, you know, the ancient church used to go about reading a text of scripture uh, by first reading it, reading the text. Sounds natural. Uh, What they called lectio, reading the text. Then what they said is that then they would enter into a state of meditation where they would think upon the text in the effort to understand what the text was saying, what they called meditatio. Then they would enter into a third phase of, of, of thinking upon the text or meditating upon the text by praying over the text and saying, uh, entering into prayer and praying the text to say, Lord, give me greater understanding. Help me to, to not only understand this text, but to love this text, to soak in its truth. And that's what the third phase is, what they called oratio or prayer. So reading, meditation, uh, prayer, and then finally, fourth and finally, they would contemplate the text, which they called contemplatio, or you know, contemplating the text. And contemplating the text is that once understood and having the text open to us by the Spirit of God through prayer, then in a sense, just w- sitting in wonder and in awe and giving praise and thanks to God for the truth that is contained therein. Imagine if the the promise of the text were a building that you would enter into it and you would simply walk around and just wonder at its design, marvel at its architecture, be overwhelmed by its glory. Think about this text. Meditate upon this text. Pray over this text that you, finite creature that you are, dust that you are, you have fellowship with the triune God, the creator of heaven and earth, of all that we see in the visible and all that we do not see in the invisible creation. What he says, when he calls to me, I will answer him. When he calls to me, I will answer him. That you can call upon the triune God, creator of heaven and earth, is a glorious and marvelous truth. Moreover, what else does he say here? I will be with him in trouble. This is the the, the core of Paul's glory in Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. You know, it's just an amazing truth when you begin to think about it. But in order to think about it, to meditate upon it, to contemplate it, it means you have to linger. Linger, savor the text, think upon it, Pray over the text and say, oh Lord, what am I but a mere creature made a little lower than than the angels, but nevertheless in Christ crowned with glory and honor that you will not only listen to me when I call upon you, but that you will be with me in trouble. What an amazing promise. 
What an amazing truth. What an amazing fellowship that we have with the triune God. Beloved in Christ, one of the things we must do if this text teaches us anything is that we have to foster our communion with God. Our communion with the triune Lord. From the divine gift of faith, that ability to trust, and our union with Christ through the indwelling presence of Christ in the Spirit, we have to We have to foster our communion, our fellowship with the triune God. What does Paul write in Colossians 3, 1? If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Seek the things that are above. Seek to foster a love for God in Christ through the Spirit and know that nothing can separate you from his love in Christ. Rejoice that God has conquered our foes and that Christ our King gathers, protects, and preserves us. And if we engage in sin, we can certainly harm our communion with God. This does not mean that we can break it. Nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ, but we can hinder it. It it, it can grow weaker. But if we draw near to God... He will draw near to us and he will fill us with the assurance that because we are in fellowship with him, because we are in communion with him, because we have sought shelter beneath the mighty wings of Christ through the spirit, he will deliver us from every foe. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh, Father God, we give you thanks for the gift of faith that you have wrought in our hearts and given us that ability to trust in you and all of your promises in Christ, the one in whom all of your promises are yes and amen. We give you thanks, O Lord, that you have united us to the Lord Jesus Christ through the all-powerful working of the Spirit. And as a result of our union with Christ, Christ, our great shepherd, he has gathered us, he is protecting us, and he is preserving us. And he is preserving us from every foe. And indeed, he has placed a hedge of angels around us so that nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing can separate us from your love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor nothing else in all of this creation. But we also rejoice in the wondrous truth of the fellowship that we have in Christ through the Spirit that we can call upon you and you, the sovereign creator of the cosmos, will listen to us, will bend your ear to hear the prayers, the prayers of creatures who are mere dust. And moreover, O Lord, that you will be with us in times of trouble. What wonderful love is this, that we should be called children of God and so we are. Oh, Father, we pray that not only would we revel in these truths, but that we would meditate upon them, that we would contemplate them, and that we would rejoice in them. Help us, O Lord, to foster a great love for you through the gospel promises of Christ, that we would foster that fellowship that will comfort us in times of need, that will shelter us in times of trouble, and that will give unto us great assurance the assurance and hope of eternal life. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.